The Start On Demand. On demand. Mackling and McNabb with you. Brett McGarry returns on Monday. And uh, one of the other key members of our team, Loren, today is celebrating a milestone birthday. Happy birthday, Monsieur Fortier behind the glass. Oh, thank you. There's no glass anymore. I know, but it doesn't work to say behind the camera. That sounds just, I don't i don't like it. You're 30, right? Oh, I'm 30. The big three. Oh. Why do you react like that? I don't know. It's just, I don't like getting old, you know? It's not old, my friend. I just said to him, Greg, uh, in the <laughs> news run, I said, Forte, it's all uphill after this. And he goes, uphill? And I was like, oh, well, I just mean it's not downhill. People say, oh, it's all downhill after this. I meant like... Things are going to, life will climb up into new heights is what I meant after 30. Yeah, I concur. This is a, this is the start of uh, the really good years, Jeff. You know right from wrong, good from bad, and uh, you have fewer excuses to do either of those things. So I know, uh, that, that's the problem. I have fewer <laughs> excuses. Your mom uh, sent us a great picture at 780-6868 of you in a kayak and uh, uh, your furry buddy next to you there. So happy birthday, Forts. Well, thank you. All right. Jeff Forche, uh, key member, of course, of the start team at 645. We'll gather the rest of the team and talk about Guinness World Records. We'll tell you why as we make our way throughout the morning. But Loren, unmistakably the number one story right now, restrictions and the easing of such that begins Saturday morning at 12.01. Yeah, what does it mean to have this reopening? How are you feeling about it? Are you excited? Are you worried? Uh, What does it mean for your summer? How does it change things for you, perhaps, when it comes to the vaccine? And I will admit, yesterday, I've been trying to go for walks after the show with my uh, good friend, Cindy. And, you know, we've been doing this for months now when we could. And then we did it from a distance or not at all, depending on the various rules. And so we went for this walk yesterday it was the most 2021 thing ever. You know, you've seen all sorts of memes saying, memes saying, oh, that's so 2021. Well, there we are on our walk. You know, COVID pounds have come and gone and come and gone and come and gone. And there we were with the phone cranked as loud as we could to CJOB's radio player app so we could hear what the, what, what the new rules were going to be, right, on this walk. And so first, when I the very first words pretty much that came out of the premier's mouth had me almost um, in tears. Here's, here's what he said right off the hop. After uh, nearly a year and a half of fighting COVID-19, it's time for Manitobans to start to get some of their freedoms back and enjoy this beautiful summer. This is what we all want to do. I felt emotional, right? I thought that's exactly right. That's what we want to do. It's this gorgeous day out there. I want to enjoy the summer. I want to stop worrying. I want our businesses to stop suffering. But then he went on to say this. This Saturday, June the 26th, all Manitobans will be able to gather in larger numbers, dine out in restaurants and on patios, attend church, go to gyms, hair salons, retail stores in every region of the province. You use, so, Sorry, Loren, I just want to jump in there because you use the word emotional. And I think a lot of people who might be on one side, the premier mentioned, there are going to be some yeah. that see this as not enough. There will be others that see this as too much. And I think the people who see it potentially as too much are hoping that these decisions weren't made with emotion, that they were made based on some science, based on fact. And that's that's the hope. And right. that's the So my my, my the first desire. reaction was okay, good. We're gonna we're, it sounds like this sounds like we're moving forward. And then my second reaction was, whoa, that's a lot of things on the list. And please do not mistake me. I get how 
we've heard from so many businesses who are suffering. We've heard from so many people who need to be able to get life back to normal. We've heard from so many people, and there goes my phone alarm, so I'm going to try to get that while I talk. We've heard from so many people, Greg, that need change, but I just, I, I worry, like I have in all the phases, we're going to play some more audio at 637. Are people going to get it and do the right thing? Well, there is a responsibility on everyone to do the right thing. These restrictions and the changes to to the restrictions don't mean we're wide open. There are still responsibilities, things that we need to do, things that we need not to do in order to keep things under control. And, of course, the ultimate goal is to get those hospitalization numbers down, those ICU rates and numbers down to a much more manageable number where we can take the next step and keep getting our immunizations, keep getting vaccinated. Lots more questions about vaccine requirements to eat indoors for restaurants with people outside the household. Uh, Presumably, uh, same for bars. We've got a request out to someone that operates a bar slash (laughs) restaurant. Are we going to see bars open? I don't think so, you based think on what I'm looking at, because of the capacity and who you need to be with. But could a patio at a bar be a reasonable expectation? We'll try and uh, work through some of that with uh, those people who operate uh, such businesses and facilities. Yeah, so we've got asks out to some of the bars at 707. We're going to talk about events, right? Outdoor capacity is increasing. Uh, there's rules for weddings still in place. But are we, are people going to start planning things for the summer? I mean, so many people started and stopped and started and stopped with everything from weddings to ceremonies to celebrations to anniversary celebrations, right? So we're going to talk to the Gates on Roblin owner at 707. And then at 837, Greg, we're going to talk about behavioral science. Like, what is it in us that has had us either listening or not listening to the restrictions? And what is it that might influence our behavior when it comes to vaccines? There's so many more things on the table now that that vaccine card is going to be required inside a restaurant to mix households. Going to a Blue Bombers game in August, you're going to have to show that QR code or card. And I think that PetSmart uh, spot is a great opportunity to remind people to keep their animals hydrated, keep them inside as much as you can. Don't take them in the car, please. Uh, John Rush, uh, the former uh, CFLer and uh, dog lover, says, if I see you with your dog in your car, don't be surprised uh, if you leave your dog in your car to come back to a broken window, he is—he uh, has been very strong on that in terms of um, of dog and animal uh, safety all around. Your your cats as well, of course. It's Mackling McNabb along with Jeff Forche, the birthday boy, Cameron Poitras, and Jeff Braun. We're talking Guinness Book of World Records. Our guest at nine thirty-five, Arvid Lowen, is a renowned cyclist. He has cycled. Tens of thousands of kilometers for charity. He's raised over $8 million for a cause very near and dear to his heart based on his ability to cycle very long distances in a short period of time. So we'll tell you what the record is he's attempting to break starting next week. But we wanted to know, have you ever thought about trying to break a Guinness Book of World Record? And I'll go first here very quickly it goes back to an episode of Happy Days for me back in the in the mid-1970s when they had the world champion or the world record holder at the time. He played Fonzie's cousin, and the record was coin snatching. Stacking quarters on your elbow, you sort of 
get your elbow up level to your to your head and your hand is uh, above your shoulder you stack the quarters and then you swoop down and try and catch the quarters and I can remember practicing that for hours upon hours when I was 10 11 years old and thought oh maybe one day I could break that world record that that world record is now over 300 coins Jeff Braun have you ever thought about trying to break a world record um most money that'd be all right <laughs> go for it how can I help or uh Least number of fatal diseases, that'd be all right, too. <laughs> Most of the time, I just, I overthink it, though, because almost every one of these records that you ever hear about, it just seems like such a, a horrible ordeal to have to break the record that I just wouldn't want to do it. Like, you know, longest time standing on one leg. Someone's probably done that for seven straight days or something like that and you know had to get their foot amputated at the end of it kind of thing so I, most of the time it just sounds like such a miserable experience that i can't actually think about one that i would want to actually have except of course like i said most money would be pretty sweet all right jeff bronze going after the most money cameron poitras what about you well i'm a record world record holder of millions perhaps hundreds of millions of uh records continue like what well, I mean, like uh, when I was a kid, I would just constantly break world records. Like no one's tapped this desk like this and oh. then did a spin. No one's walked down these exact steps on the sidewalk and then did a spin and then went like, yeah, no one's ever done that. And I would break just record all after record. taking a spin at the end? Well, no, it's anything. Like that's what, now I'm going to blink six a, times. That's a first. I broke, that's not a I record. I broke millions of world, no one's ever done that before. Mm, Can, okay. So I, I'm millions of world record holders. I was I, when I was like 12, I was breaking them like this constantly. It was a constant flow. All right, okay, <laughs> Jeff Forte. I'm counting on you to save this segment. Yeah, well, I'm not. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest with you. If I'm gonna break a world record, it's gotta be like you know a stupid human trick. You know something from like Letterman. You know, I, I, I don't even know what uh, I was looking up. Stupid records revealed. Uh, there's uh, most snails on on a face. From an 11-year-old who uh, had 43 live snails, you know, I think I could probably break that somehow. Or most eggs crush the head. That one I can't do. That's 80 eggs. That's, nah. I, I want to be able to think after that. So. At least you put some effort into researching ones that might be plausible. I <laughs> well, appreciate I, your I, I, efforts, I, Jeff Forche. The I'm other two so far. Leader. No, no, no. You had your chance, Poitras. <laughs> what about you, McNabb? Well, I love chips, so I'm trying to Google right now the world record for eating the most chips, but all I can seem to find is eating the most chips as quickly as possible, which we know speed eating comes with all sorts of warnings of it being extremely dangerous. I'm on this potato chip world record website right now, and the most eaten in one minute was 27, I think it was, uh, and then another guy crushed a stack of 39 Pringles chips at once, but they all come with this warning that stuffing food in your mouth can be extremely dangerous in, in high speeds. I'm talking the most, not as quickly, but like, you know, I bet you I could do like 30 bags of salt and vinegar in, in an in hour or something like that. It would still be incredibly unpleasant by Your the end of it. Your tongue would fall you'd off. Be, you'd be laid out for days after that. Oh, yeah. I have woken up in the morning. This is too much information. Post a salt and vinegar binge and been like, <laughs> I think I could peel layers off my tongue. Like, that's how much vinegar and salt has corroded the inside. So it's unhealthy. Grossly unhealthy. Greg Mackling, Loren McNabb with you. Mackling and McNabb. McGarry returns on Monday, although I suspect the couch potatoes 
will hit the airwaves this weekend and the Couch Potatoes podcast will be available. Brett and Jeff never take a week off. So if you're a fan of the Couch Potatoes, keep your eyes open for that. We start this hour, Loren. I just had to hear a little JT there. Start this hour with talking about taking your family out for a Saturday morning or Sunday morning brunch as it comes back to the table as an option this weekend. Yeah, and when you play music and think about, say, something like dancing to Justin Timberlake or whatever the cool kids are doing these days, that's what I would have been doing 10 years ago. Bars, you know, are an option now to reopen. We're working to bring a bar on later this morning, Greg, to talk about whether that even makes sense for them, given capacity requirements. But dancing, you know, events, all sorts of things uh, can be considered with caveats. So again, restaurants and bars can open at 25% indoors, 50% outdoors. If you're dining from the same household, uh, you have to, you can be dining with the same household. Or if you're wanting to mix households, you can do that too, as long as you're proving both people are vaccinated. And then when it comes to events, they remain capped at 10 people inside, but outside you can now celebrate with a 25 person cap for things like a wedding or other sort of celebration. And so there's a few more options on the table for both Manitobans and Manitoba businesses. Ray Louie is the owner and GM of the Gates on Roblin and is our guest this morning. Hi, Ray. Hi, good morning. You're up early, I know, because you're already on the go today with different things that you have to do for your business. Is this change a big one, Ray, when it comes to the possibility of at least a slightly larger event? Have you been getting any phone calls in the last 24 hours from people asking their own questions? It's uh, actually the phone's been ringing off the hooks because uh, this is grad season and they're trying to find ways to do things outside of the schools because the schools are still bound by the rules preventing larger events. But the families are trying to get together to do smaller ones. And uh, to answer your previous question, yes, this is great news. But it's more of an emotional one because it allows our restaurant to open and we can do some dining and we have some increased capacities, uh, but we're still not doing the large events. This is still a feel-good piece more than anything else. Ray, obviously this is digging into uh, uh, your sales in a a huge fashion for the second summer in a row, even though it's not even Canada Day yet already. You know, you're you're counting down the days and the weeks until summer is over. What are the challenges to to get reopened at this point? And talk about uh, where you you see perhaps things going by the end of the summer. Are you you preparing for what might become uh, the next round of reopenings? Oh, absolutely. That's uh, actually very insightful because what we do with the events and the weddings, it isn't something that just gets turned on by the turn of a key. Uh, And with the restrictions based on capacity and numbers, it's really hard to plan a wedding. And this weekend, for instance, we have three days notice to go ahead with a 25-person wedding or not go ahead, depending on what yesterday's announcement was going to be, and we don't know what the next one will be. I mean, there's a lot of complaints about shifting the goalposts and moving the finish line, but really, you can't blame anyone for this because this, there's so many variables. But what it does do is exactly what you said. It, it changes our summer. It's hard to plan, and and really, with the restrictions the way they're going, uh, we're, we're all on pins and needles wait, waiting to see what event can happen, what can't, and which ones are relegated back to virtual, uh, how they were planned before the summer started uh, because of uh, the restrictions. 
You mentioned that grad season, Ray. It's it's winding down in theory. Last night in my own community, there was a grad parade where the kids went by in their cars. And I thought, well, this might be the only celebration they get, except that come Saturday, like you said, you can have 25 people in a public space. And so when it comes to those grads, that's even moving the goalposts for them. They didn't think they'd have any celebration and now they could potentially have a minor one. So you mentioned you're getting calls about that. How many are being planned or is it still sort of in the planning phase? We have half a dozen that are planned in the July and August where just a group of families and the friend group of the graduate gets together. And uh, what we do is because we have the luxury of space, we offer what we did last year, which is set up a little stage and let the friends kind of parade across the stage in front of their parents in their grad outfits and take some pictures. Um, Basically a mock grad with a friend group, you know, not exceeding whatever the capacity is at the time. We're hoping for 50 people, 50 percent indoors by that time, in which case that can be four or five, maybe six families getting together uh, and using some of the large square footage that we have to to do an informal event uh, and have a grad that way. We've also been doing some outside presentations. Uh, I know in our community, we presented scholarships outdoors to the recipients so that they could have a ceremony of some sort. So, Ray, two ways uh, people can gather indoors to dine uh, if you're in the same family household unit is one way. The other way is if you have that vaccine card or QR code. How are you going about enforcing the latter? We're just looking for it right now because and, and visually looking at the QR code card because we really don't have access to that database and I don't think we ever will. Uh, we were expecting a little more of a gap between vaccinated and unvaccinated. We were hoping that there might be vaccinated only events that we could run. But again, without access to the database, the card itself is is a visual inspection and nothing more. But uh, to put the go posts at double vaccinated people and then not have a larger gap between what we can and cannot do with them uh, seems to render that immaterial at this time, at this stage of the game anyways. Yeah, still, also, oh, sorry, go ahead, go I ahead, I was just Lauren. curious, there's also questions from your staff, right, in terms of how far they have to go with that. You know, the card has someone's name on it, but, you know, in theory, doesn't have to match that person. Like, is there also going to be a request for the card and picture ID? Is it going that far? Again, we don't really know. We uh, we have obviously we're not going to get access to the database anytime soon, uh, but we haven't seen the written health order yet. So we don't know how far we have to go in terms of checking it, checking ID, uh, whether it's a uh, uh, declaration at the table that allows the guest to take on the liability and responsibility of uh, saying that their ID and card are valid. Um, which we have seen in the second wave after we opened then, we were allowed to do table declarations where the onus is placed back onto the patron. Uh, We don't know if that's going to be allowed this time around with the vaccination cards. Yeah, I was under the impression uh, from Dr. Rusin yesterday, and either one of you can correct me if I'm wrong as we leave here, that there was going to be an app circulated so that uh, restaurants and and other businesses could have access to that database and, and whether or not uh, those QR codes were, were uh, accurate and, and could scan for them. Well, we heard that the CFL is getting it, but we don't know if every restaurant's going to get it, if the app is available upon the reopening this Saturday, uh, or if it's something that's just planned down the line. Because, like I said, we're opening this Saturday with three days' notice. We don't really know what to expect because we don't even have the printed health order yet. 
Very good. Ray, we appreciate your time. Uh, good luck this weekend, and we look forward to speaking with you and checking in with you throughout the summer. We appreciate it very much. Oh, thank you so much, you too. Thanks for having me on. As always, we invite you to go to cjob.com, globalnews.ca, for our question of the day. On Saturday, health orders will allow you to dine at restaurants, increase the people you can have in your yard, get a haircut, and worship. Your reaction? Four options for you. Glad, but very cautious. Leading the pack right now with 43% of the votes. Approve wholeheartedly, 37% of you in that camp. Opening too much too soon, 15% wholeheartedly disapprove, just under 5%. Craig Mackling, Loren McNabb, Mackling McNabb with you on the start. Brett McGarry returns on Monday. Kathy Kennedy in for a vacationing Jeff Courier for the rest of this week. Loren will be in for Jeff next week. And Loren, as we move towards this first phase of reopening in the fourth, Three, two, one, great summer reopening plan. Manitoba health officials are reminding us that we still have a ways to go when it comes to reducing hospitalizations due to COVID and increasing vaccinations. That's right. We're going to be watching those numbers, of course. But here's what we know. We know that vaccine card is going to be required in a growing number of scenarios. It'll be used for access to Winnipeg Blue Bomber football games. If you want to mix households for in-room dining in restaurants, you need to have two vaccines. And so we're trying to figure out this morning if these sort of carrots or caveats or what have you will influence more Manitobans to get that vaccine. And how does what your friends or family are doing play into what you might choose to do, whether what it comes to the restrictions, Greg, or with the vaccines themselves. And so we're joined this morning by Sasha Tregoboff, Director of the Behavioral Insights Team's Canadian office. Good morning, Sasha. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, before we ask some of our vaccine and restriction-related questions, what is it that you do? What what are behavioral insights, behavioral science? Yeah, so um, at the Behavioral Insights team, we take the latest research on how people make decisions. And we use that insight to help governments, to help nonprofits, communicate more effectively, and also to build better programs and, and services. And so, unsurprisingly, since the, the pandemic has sort of hit our communities, a lot of our work has focused on how do people really think um, about things like vaccination? What are the factors that drive them? And um, how, can, how can government do its work more effectively around that? Sasha, for months now, we've had uh, various restrictions on the things that we're allowed to do or that we're, I think... Uh, I would put in quotation marks, supposed to do, because a lot of it is on our own merit. It is on the honor system, and governments have been counting on us to do the right things. And, Loren, I know you had a back and forth with one of our listeners on this this morning. So before we talk about messaging as it pertains to vaccinations, what about with regards to getting people to do the right things, to to live in the right uh, gray areas, so to speak, when there are recommendations, when there are public health orders that really, in, in for all intents and purposes, Sasha, cannot be enforced by any government agency. Right, right. Yeah, well, I mean, this has been such um, a, a critical challenge. And I mean, the, the one thing I, I, I got to say is, to me, it's amazing how, how Manitobans, um, how Canadians across the country have made really drastic 
um, you know, changes uh, to their lives in order to protect themselves, their families, um, their, their loved ones. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of skeptical. You know, habits are really deeply ingrained. They're hard to change. And um, I, I know you hear a lot about, you know, and it's important to pay some attention to the people who aren't, um, you know, sort of necessarily doing their, their share or sort of really understanding the challenges we're facing. Um, but there has been really sort of massive level behavior changes um, uh, across the country. And I think, you, you know, that's why, you know, despite some really challenging uh, waves and circumstances, you, you know, th- that's a big part of, of, you know, why we've seen better outcomes in, in Manitoba than, than in other parts of the parts of the world. But, you know, you've you got to give clear advice to people. You've got to make it as easy as you can um, for them to understand what they need to do and, and why, uh, you know, you got to engage with them on on that level, um, and you got to wherever it's possible, you got to give substitutes, right? Not just say, hey, you can't do this, but you know, unfortunately, this is risky. We really think you shouldn't, um, but you know, here's another option, um, and, and we find that type of strategy to be really helpful. Language is really important, Sasha, in terms of just how it's phrased. You know, suggestions maybe don't work. People people often look when it comes to behavior for really clear clear sets of rules, clear sets of guidelines, whether it comes to restrictions or, or vaccines. It's the clarity that matters. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, we've all got so much um, uh, going on in our lives and, and we've just got we've got limited attention. We've got limited sort of processing power to deal with all this new information that's always flooding us. Um, you know, and to think that everybody out there is, is able to do, you know, uh, epidemiological analysis on, you know, should I go over to my friend's place for dinner tonight or not? You know, it, it's just not a reasonable approach. And so it's so important for that, you know, that group of really informed uh, you know, professional, whether they're in public health or, or family doctors or what have you, um, to just really distill that all down to some clear and, and simple guidance that, that people can uh, understand and follow. We're not meaning to dance around the subject here, but your answers are fascinating, Sasha. So how much of our behaviors are dictated or predicated on the fact uh, that we want to do the right thing versus we don't want to get caught doing the wrong thing. I always talk to my kids. They're getting close to that age where they'll be able to get their beginner's driver's license. And it's, do you want to be a driver that doesn't go through the red light because it's the right thing to do versus you don't want to go through the red light because you don't want to get a ticket? How how do we decide which camp we're going to live in with most of these decisions? Yeah, so so what, what you got a, a couple hours for this conversation or uh, <laughs> Sure, why not? <laughs> so, you know, I I think the starting point is that um the vast majority of people do have um uh, what we would call like a pro-social motivation. I, I think there's actually from an evolutionary perspective, you know, uh, human beings are, 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 are in societies. We're not, we're not sort of loners um, uh, by, by default. And so there is this really instinctual desire that we have to be reciprocal uh, with people, to do good things for other people, um, and, and to be, I guess, you know, definitions shift, but, you know, to be in some way moral, um, however we would, we would sort of define that. Now, there are some you know, folks out there for various reasons that that don't have that sort of intrinsic motivation to do the right thing. And, and that sort of, you know, threat of, of, of penalty um, does play a very, a very meaningful uh, role in modulating our behavior. Because the other thing is people are really, really good at justifying their own actions, right? If I've got a strong self-interest, 
in uh, running that red light, you know, there's probably a hundred ways I can explain to myself, oh, you know, everybody else does it. Uh, you know, no, no one was crossing through anyways. There was no real risk. And so you, you do need to hit this balance. But I think a starting point of understanding that, you know, people really do have a desire to, to do well, um, you know, by their family and by their community and to try to really tap in and activate that, that sort of basic motivation is, I think, overall a really effective and important approach. So let's talk the vaccine and what we're seeing here in Manitoba, Sasha. And again, just for our listeners who might be joining now, we are talking to Sasha Chegoboff, who's the director of the Behavioral Insights Team's Canadian office. They have offices in the States as well. And Sasha, I'm curious, you know, there's the message from the government and, and public health officials that the vaccine will help all of us be more healthy. But the, but that's not working for everyone. People might not be buying into that. So now we know that if we don't have that double dose, there's things we won't be able to do, uh, like the in-room dining in restaurants. If you don't have the double dose, you can't mix households starting Saturday. Football games are on the table for August, but you're going to have to show those two doses. So does that? how much does that work to influence those people who might be on the fence? Because you talked about that desire to do good for the for the social good, but there might just be the desire to hang out with buddies. How, where does that weigh in? Totally. Yeah. So um, I, I do want to, I don't want to do the sort of politician thing. I, I do want to answer your question directly, but I also just, just before that want to say that, um, you, you know, our, our research and, and our, our sort of, you know, approach on these things, the sort of, you know, psychological approaches um, just want to highlight the importance of, um, I think to increase vaccination rates, the most important thing that government can do is to make it easy for people to get vaccinated. So, you know, it may sound simple, but reducing hassles and booking your shot, getting to a clinic, finding time off work, finding that childcare you need, that stuff can have a really massive impact. Um, but, but in addition to addressing these practical barriers, it is important to communicate effectively and to think about different incentives we can put out there for folks to get, to get vaccinated who may be, uh, you know, on the fence or having some questions um, uh, about it. So when it comes to effective messages, um, you know, we think it's important to remind people of two very powerful benefits of vaccination. So protecting loved ones and returning to normalcy. And so we've, we've, you know, sort of tested, we've run some, uh, uh, some, some sort of, you know, experiments of, uh, you know, testing out different messaging. And one of the ones that's really effective is your loved ones need you. Get the COVID-19 vaccine to make sure you can be there for them. So, so that's, a really, that's a really powerful message and I think reflects where the public health community has been coming. But the other one that we found really effective is now we have the chance to return to the people and places we love. Let's get our lives back again. Sign up to get the COVID-19 vaccine. And I think that taps into these things that you're talking about here that we've really missed and, and, and want to be doing. So, you know, I, I, I realize, um, you know, I probably shouldn't say this, but, but I live in Toronto, but, but a lot of my family, most of my family is in, in Winnipeg. That's, that's where my family is all from. And, you know, me, I wasn't sort of questioning. I was thrilled to get my two shots. Um, but let's say I was a little hesitant, had some questions, you know, being able to do that interprovincial travel, uh, you know, to see my grandmother again, to see my cousins, uh, you know, that really would be important to me. And, it, and it's not just me, you know, these sort of non-financial incentives, you know, being able to eat dinner with our friends, um, they, they can be really valuable. You know, it may sort of seem like whether or not to get vaccinated is too big a decision for these, you know, small factors to influence, but that's just not at all what our research shows.
Well, and I, I think you've touched on uh, the fact that so much of the great advertising over the last couple of decades has switched, where you might not even realize what the product is. You know what the message <laughs> is, and the message is quite often emotional, and it, it's trying to tug at your heartstrings to think about something other than the actual product. This has been fascinating, Sasha. Uh, please promise to join us again sometime. It would be my pleasure, and thank you again for having me on. And I know when I praise the sunshine and a beautiful weekend like we have ahead, I know we need rain. And I I pray that we get that sooner than later and and exactly when we need it. Uh, But there is no mistaking. It's been a beautiful uh, few days. It's a beautiful few days coming up. Take a look what's going on in the Okanagan. I used to live in Vernon, B.C. And they are expecting highs 39, 40, 41, 42 degrees. And dry. Am I I correct? It's more dry there. It's always dry there. So you don't get the humidity, but the big concern, Loren, always in the Okanagan and the interior of BC, forest fires. So hopefully that doesn't become a manifestation of uh, what is record June heat in that part of Canada, including on the lower mainland. Uh, They're going to get into the high 20s, uh, low 30s, in fact, in parts of the lower mainland land and uh, people aren't necessarily uh, used to that. Your mom and dad know a thing or two about Manitoba heat, but heat in uh, Vancouver, something that's a little bit different. Yeah, there's all sorts of different learning curves if you move throughout this country in terms of what you might experience in all the West, Greg. And I have family in Calgary, too, and the photos that come from them throughout the year are hilarious. The swings and temps and maybe not funny to them, but I get a laugh that one day 30, next day, you know, nearing snow, like all sorts of different crazy systems moving there. Yeah, that uh, is a learning curve for sure. Uh, the Chinooks are great in the winter time, but uh, those three degree uh, overnight lows in the middle of July and August uh, take a little while to get used to when they take place. Uh, to start this hour, uh, this really is uh, an incredible story, an incredible man, a Winnipegger. Our next guest is a grandfather of 11. His feats of endurance on bicycle are legendary and record-breaking, Loren. Yeah, so in 2011, our next guest set a new Guinness World Record for crossing Canada by bike in 13 days, 6 hours, 13 minutes. Now, that record was later broken in 2019, but that's how records go. And then in 2020, he set another Guinness World Record for the furthest distance cycled in one month, which is 30 days. So he cycled 11,617.99 kilometers, averaging 387 kilometers per day. That's incredible. Do I have that number right? That's crazy. Yes, you have it right. He broke the previous record by 303 kilometers or an average of 10 kilometers per day, Greg. Yeah, well, I want to know where that last meter went so that he couldn't get to (laughs) 11,000. 0.99. That's what I was wondering about. Yes. Arvid rides uh, to raise funds and create awareness for the children rescued by the Moli Children's Family, a street uh, children rescue mission in Kenya, Africa. He's been doing this since 2005. Since then, Arvid has raised, get this, Loren, more than $8 million for MCF using a fundraising platform built around his extreme cycling endeavors. He's a good friend of 680 CJOB. It's been far too long since I've heard his voice directly. Good morning, Arvid. Good morning, Greg. You are absolutely continue to amaze me. Uh, I don't know when your birthday is, but I'm pretty sure you turned 65 this year. 
Yeah, it's around the corner, yes. Well, (laughs) an early happy birthday to you. And uh, hey, this record you're going to break, only positivity here, Arvid, not attempt, you're going to break it. It's one you attempted to break in 2014. Tell us about the logistics of the attempt. Where will you be riding? How many hours a day? That sort of stuff. Give Give us the cold, hard facts to start. The whole cold, hard facts is I will be riding again on Henderson Highway. I mean, COVID makes us uh, do all kinds of different alterations to our plans. So, so this is not a plan that I had initially that I wanted to try this record again. But I will be riding back and forth on Henderson Highway uh, approximately 16 to 17 times a day in order to try to reach about 443 or 450 kilometers, which is the, the number that I need to reach on a daily basis basis to break a record set by a fellow from the Netherlands in 2010 for the fastest time to cycle 10,000 kilometers. And he did it in 22 days. I think it was 15 hours and 34 minutes. So that is my goal. So that will be what, I, what I'm doing starting on Monday at 5 a.m. 22 days is the goal to have that fastest time to cycle 10,000 kilometers. You just have to get in under him, correct, Arvid? It doesn't matter... How? It doesn't matter. Like somebody, you were laughing. I only need to beat it by one meter. That's fine. <laughs> I get it. So, you know, I think that obviously you're a cycling enthusiast. You have to be to do this. But there's clearly a personal motive at play here. What drives you to do this? You, you sent a wonderful picture to Greg last night uh, about a young little girl that you had met overseas. Maybe tell us about that and sort of what got you into this in the first place. Well, there's many stories that that have gotten us into, and it began in 2005 when I actually brought three children from this home to Canada. I modified a tandem bike, and I t- pulled them across Canada in rotation, one at a time, an event we, we called Spoke 2005, the Canadian Safari. So that was, that was the beginning of doing it for a purpose. Uh, the, I think the picture that you're referring to was from two years ago when I took a group of people to visit MCF. And, you know, we were invited to be part of a food distribution effort. And some of these kids that came to this food distribution effort, like they had walked like 10 kilometers, the temperatures were 35 degrees Celsius. And I just remember this picture of this one little girl that carried her sibling on her hip. And when she stood in line, you know, we were distributing food from massive pots that had all kinds of different lentils in there. You know, that little girl had a container, her little sibling on her hip, and her eyes kind of told the story. You know, she basically, the eyes told me, Mister, can you please fill my pot, my, my container full so that my pain is quelled, but that I can also take some leftover food to my siblings. <laughs> you know, and once you've stood in an experience like that, <laughs> the, you will go to all kinds of ends to do what you are called to do. And for me, I, I believe I've been called to be an ambassador for these kids. I happen to like cycling, not to this extreme. So I've chosen to use that ultramarathon cycling as a platform to do that because it's, it's unique to be 65 years old and to attempt to break a Guinness World Record at that time. Yeah, it's a bit unique. But you know what? It's a platform that allows me to share my passion, which is making a difference to kids in need. Arvid, uh, the passion that you have for this, how often when you're on that bike and, and you're, maybe you're thinking, I can't, I can't go another kilometer, I, I, I have to stop, do images like the one you just outlined and shared with us pop into your head and how often does that get you another few kilometers or, or maybe another few hours on the bike? 
you know, it's, it's, it's a constant thing. This stuff, what I do, is hard. There's no doubt about it. Like every morning I will be waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning and, uh, you know, your mind starts playing tricks on you. And the only question that I am allowed to really allow my mind to pursue is, am I able to get on, on the bike and ride this morning? And if the answer is yes, all the rest of my emotions, all the rest of my feelings, they just really don't count. I have to push them aside. And, you know, like our, our dollars, our money goes a long way. And uh, 50 cents buys one meal for a child in need, like I described. And so, so yeah, so it's, this, is, this is the image that I often have. And if I ride one kilometer, because I have a lot of people that are supporting us, in order to raise $8 million in 17 years, you know, there are some people that are saying, we believe in what Muli Children's Family is doing. We believe in what your, your efforts are on behalf on their behalf and so they are supporting us i have um some money that is dependent on me able to not set the record but to finish the 10,000 kilometers so if i ride a kilometer i know that there will be six children that will receive one meal because i have that much committed to just finishing because finishing is really at the end of the day what life is about i mean we all want to be the champions we all but there is only one winner there is only one gold medal in the olympics in every event but many people compete to do their best and i believe that we are only called to do our best and if that is going to be a successful guinness world record i'm good with it if it means i can ride all 10,000 kilometers even if it takes longer then that's what my what's on my agenda we have just seconds here, Arvind, and I'm sorry for that because it's so wonderful to hear your passion. How do we help? If we want to donate to your cause, where do we go? You know, just follow grandpascan.com, and really our, most of our updates will be on my Facebook. It's a public Facebook. Just Google Arvid Lowen. There's only one of them around, and so you, you'll find our Facebook, and, and, and the instructions are there. No truer word spoken than that last uh, sentence from you, Arvid. There's only one of you around. We're so grateful to call you a friend. Thank you for what you do. And if you'd like to learn more about what Muli's, uh, Ch- Muli Children's Family is all about, you can check out their web- website, mulichildrensfamily.org. Arvid, good luck. You, you told me last night that uh, we'll be with you on most of this ride, at least the morning portions and, and the rest of the CJOB crew. And uh, hopefully we can catch up to you early one morning and, and see how you're making out. Uh, congratulations yeah. on all your achievements and best of luck as you start things out next Thursday. Thank you. And you need to start a little bit earlier. I'll be out there at 5 o'clock, but you're not on the air at 5 o'clock. So <laughs> you can you tech, you, we can call you if you want. You, you can call us. We'll talk. Program, guys. <laughs> we can do an hour just for you, Arvid. I think we could do that. Thanks, my friend. Talk soon. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Arvid Lowen, what an incredible man. For years now, efforts around reconciliation have discussed the need for Canadians to better educate themselves on Indigenous history, Loren. Yeah, and as we wait to hear this morning more details out of Saskatchewan and what's being called, quote, a horrific and shocking discovery of hundreds of unmarked graves at the site of a former residential school in that province, we want to take a look at the steps that have been taken by some Canadians to try and better understand this dark chapter in our past and, of course, the legacy that it's been left behind. And so that news conference out of Saskatchewan is scheduled for 10 a.m. In the meantime, Greg, we know many are still reeling from the news out of Kamloops last month when it comes to the discovery of the remains of up to 215 children on the grounds of a former residential school 
there. And so there's lots of questions and lots of learning still to be done here. Yeah, we only need to go 200 kilometres to our west to Brandon where a conversation about a, a burial ground at the former Curran Park campground and recreational site has uh, regained uh, a resurgence of uh, and calls for the city of Brandon to somehow reacquire that property. And following the discovery in Kamloops, Loren, more than 52,000 Canadians signed up for a free online course offered by the University of Alberta. It's called Indigenous Canada. And to tell us more about that course and what we need to try and learn and to also understand, we're joined by Chris Anderson, Professor and Dean in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. Chris, thank you for this. Good morning. Would you do us the, the honour of, of giving us an, uh, an outline, an overview of, of what people uh, are privileged to learn in this course? Uh, well, the course is set out over uh, 12 or so modules, uh, looks at various things kind of historically and contemporarily uh, relating to um, land issues, relating to new media, uh, relating to art and culture, relating to uh, uh, colonialism and, and racism. It, it really is a, a very uh, wide net looking at the impact of uh, colonialism in Canada over the past kind of five centuries or so. We talked about the number of 52,000 Canadians signing up just in the last month or so, uh, but more than 200,000, I think the number is closer to 300,000, Chris, have now taken the course over the past couple of years. Why did you decide to offer it? Why do we see this as important in, in, in terms of just getting that info out to people as easily as possible? Well, I think part of the reason is because we see uh, Indigenous studies as being more than uh, just ensuring uh, that we get Indigenous students that graduate. Obviously, that's um, that's of primary importance, but we also see the work we do as having a, a public education uh, function. And of course, because we're a very a very small unit, uh, you know, we can't invite all all Canadians in to take uh, take lessons from our our professors as much as we wish that that were the case. And so we started using some online tools as a way to uh, get uh, as much uh, public information out there as possible and for people who are interested in doing so to kind of take the take a small step toward uh, educating themselves on, on things that in the past they never felt the need to and certainly in their privilege never really needed to know about. Professor Anderson, uh, when it comes to residential schools, we played a clip from earlier this morning from historian Ken Coates. He said, as we navigate these discoveries, that uh, Canadians still don't seem to comprehend how horrific residential schools really were. I'm going to invite you just to listen uh, to what uh, Coates had to say on that. Most of these children, I know sort of part of the answer comes back and say they died of tuberculosis, they died of influenza. It's absolutely true. But the reality is, is that oftentimes their parents did not know for months, if not for years, that their children had died and that they were not handled with respect. And there's many reasons to be upset about this. But the most important one is the fact that the Canadian society is still so slow in identifying its responsibilities for the way in which Indigenous people have been mistreated for so very long. Is it fair to ask, uh, you know, we don't know how uh, many of these children may have died, what their cause of death was, and it doesn't paint a picture of uh, the conditions in the school that may have also contributed to them, you know, acquiring uh, or contracting tuberculosis or the flu. What would you, your reaction be to that, that quote and that comment from uh, Mr. Coates? Well, I mean, I, I agree wholeheartedly with uh, the sentiment of the, the quote. There was a quote I heard someplace, and you'd have to check 
check to make sure, but um, someone was telling me, because this is not my specific area of research, although I've taught audit in the past, that you had a better chance of surviving World War One than you did of surviving a stay in a residential school. And we call them schools, but really, very, very euphemistically, they're schools. They have as much in common with what we would see now as prisons, um, as you know, forms of correctional institutions as they, as they would of what we think of normally as schools. And when I used to teach on this, it was one of the things to get students in my class to reframe was to think about, well, what would it look like to think about them as prisons rather than just as as schools? And it really, it had a huge impact on the students in terms of the way that they, they rethought about what residential schools were and then what their impact uh, has continued to be going forward. I remember, Chris, interviewing uh, someone out of Portage La Prairie. There was a residential school there, Long Plains, near Long Plains First Nation, and and the building still stands, and, and there's some work there to maybe turn it into a place people can visit to understand what it looked like, right? Like, this is the room where you were brought in where they cut your hair. Here's yeah. the place that you might have had a, a cellar room where that you would be put for punishment. I remember him pointing to a grate outside the old school saying that he had he knows stories of relatives that when they were sick, say, for example, but something like tuberculosis, well, they didn't want it in the school, so kids were put outside to sleep on the grate, you know, maybe in freezing temperatures. Like, there's all these kinds of conditions that that's why school is perhaps the, the big misnomer here too Mm -hmm. and and so when we come to understanding that i'm just how do we how do we sort of take people inside that because it's not just the course and and hearing those stories sometimes i think seeing it might be a difference yeah i mean that's definitely part of it and and certainly the way that we have framed uh the indigenous canada mooc is kind of as a small first step uh but i you know we always tell people if they if they want to learn more about this stuff we shouldn't really get to decide on our own kind of when our learning begins and ends. Whenever possible, it's important to do it in partnership with Indigenous communities, with Indigenous nations, because this is the, you know, this is a primary element of residential schools is that it wasn't done in partnership. There was a paternalistic idea that Canadian officials thought they knew uh, better or best what was good for Indigenous communities, Indigenous families, and Indigenous nations. And the residential schools were were one of many examples of what that paternalism uh, looked like. And so I think the, I think the learning element is is really important but i think whenever uh whenever canadians have an opportunity to engage in respectful relationships with indigenous peoples with indigenous organizations whether it's volunteer or what have you they should definitely um they should definitely avail themselves of those opportunities i think for a lot of us uh, you know the pride in who we are uh, knowledge of our family history. You look at the popularity of the different websites over the last several years. We have a thirst for understanding where we come from, Professor, and a knowledge of our heritage. And so just talk about the impact of having that stolen, having that taken away, having it basically made illegal and what that has done to generations uh, following those who were you know, you used the term imprisoned, imprisoned at these at these quote unquote residential schools. Yeah, I mean, this is this is, you know, uh, this is a large part of the of the reframing that um, that goes on is uh, uh, trying to trying to figure out a way to plug people into uh, empathy around these kinds of issues, because if you've never experienced it, it's very difficult to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And of course, one of the things that we know about the the uh, the impact of uh, these kinds of uh, these kinds of projects and these kinds of histories is the intergenerational impact um, that it that it uh, it hits families with. So when you think about you know having parenting 
the ability to parent your children taken away from you for two or three generations. And then on top of that, thinking about as people kind of grow into adulthood and, and kind of casting around for for uh, skills for parenting their, their their own children. I mean, this is this is a multi generational uh, a multi generational issue, and it's yeah, it's just it's it's ongoing. It's this is it's not like this is something that just happened historically. Uh, you know, Indigenous people were impacted by it, and now we're still feeling the effects of stuff that happened historically. The same type of paternalism is still apparent in the child uh, child healthcare system and the child welfare system. All of this kind of stuff is ongoing. I want to just add personally, Chris, if you don't mind, I, I signed up for the course about a month ago. And so yesterday I just finished, I think it was module four. And so we talk about all we need to learn about residential schools. And, and we had a guest on earlier this week talking about the 60 scoops and all these things that were, were in some of our lifetimes. So they're not in the past, but then there is the things that came in the past. And I just yesterday even learned about the potlatch, which was sort of that gift giving feast yeah. practiced by indigenous peoples and, and how even something like that was actually made illegal. And I reread that section over and over again. And I thought, how did I, you know, all these things I just did not know. It go, it, the tentacles of this are so deep. Yeah, absolutely. And to, and to make it one even worse, uh, even, even if you had particular uh, practices that were, that were outlawed, the Canadian government then made it illegal to hire a lawyer to fight the illegality of those things that were outlawed. I find myself taking deep breaths when, when I hear those things because I, I, I rewatched and reread that section over and again because I just, I feel like there are so many, you used the word privilege earlier, and I keep finding myself um, saddened and dismayed about all the things I did not know. What's the reaction been from the tens of thousands who've now taken this course, Chris? Well, I think the, I think the reactions have run the gamut. I think many people have uh, felt the, uh, felt the the same uh, emotions that that you have. Uh, I think also that a lot of people had their eyes eyes opened uh, to all kinds of histories that they you know they never had the opportunity to to learn in in school. And you know, look, there are people who wake up in the morning probably hating us as Indigenous people, but I'm willing to believe that most Canadians aren't like that. People are trying to go through their lives. But when you exist in a system of privilege where you don't have to learn uh, certain things, uh, even when you are always in a kind of a structural relationship with people like Indigenous people, then the thing that I think uh, frustrates a lot of us Indigenous people is that people keep rediscovering this. People keep having to relearn these kinds of things. You get moments like this that pop up and then they kind of fade back into the into the public consciousness. And so every time something like this happens, somebody says, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know this. And you feel like saying, well, why don't you know this? Mm-hmm. No, that's absolutely fair. And I think too, it says a lot about not, you know, you can point the finger of blame at the school system or the government or anything you want. But again, it does come back to us, does it not? Yeah, although I, uh, there's certainly a lot of blame to go around. But from my perspective, even though I know people will feel a lot of guilt and a lot of shame, because that's, you know, what we tend to do in, in liberal countries like Canada, I'm less interested in people feeling guilt and shame, because those are kind of emotions of, of, of luxury. I'm more interested in people getting a sense of public responsibility. What can I do now, uh, in terms of the, the privilege that I have? And very importantly, maybe most importantly, I don't get to decide on my own what help means uh, or what assistant me- assistance means or what have you. How can I do this in partnership with Indigenous communities and Indigenous peoples? Chris, can we make an appointment to have this uh, discussion and continue it further? Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate your time and, and all the effort that's gone into educating I'm literally emailing you now, Chris, just so you know. <laughs> just, that's the only reason why I'm laughing. I'm like, we're going to have to follow up on this. This has been tremendous. Thank you.
Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.